awesome. This is uh, just a preface to this. The Christian here with a beard is William Lane Craig, one of my, uh, yeah, that'd be great, John, thank you, one of my personal heroes. And the British guy is Peter Atkins, a British atheist. And this is the objection that often comes up with science. And it usually goes like this. Unless you can prove something scientifically, you're irrational and you shouldn't believe it. So how do you come back at that? Here's one way. Taken together with a reason why people believe, desperate to believe, together with the fact that you don't need actually a God, in a sense amounts to an argument against the existence of God. Well, I, I guess I don't see that. I mean, why doesn't that commit the genetic fallacy of trying to say that by explaining how a belief originates, you thereby show the belief to be false. Even if it were true that belief in the existence of God were the product of fear and anxiety and so forth, which I don't for a minute admit, but even if it were, it, that's simply a genetic fallacy to say that because that's the way the belief originates, that's only one that therefore the belief is false. But that's only one half of the argument. I'm not saying that that alone is mm -hmm. adequate, and I'm not saying that the fact that science can account for everything it alone is also adequate, but taken together, the fact that, one, that science is omnipotent and the fact that I can understand why people like you desperately want to believe in God, that is an argument against the existence now, But two fallacious arguments put together don't, don't make a sound not, argument, right? They are, but, <laughs> but, 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 but do you deny that science cannot account for everything? Yes, I do deny that science So what can't it account for? Well, I, had you brought that up in the debate, I had a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we're all rational to accept. Let, so, me, list, let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, metaphysical truths, like there are other minds other than my own, or that the external world is real, or that the past was not created five minutes ago with an appearance of age, are rational beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value uh, are not accessible by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the scientists in Western democracies. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful, like the good, cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with um, unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points A and B. But that strictly cannot be proven. We simply have to assume that in order to hold to the theory. But you're missing the whole... Well, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. None of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and yet they are accepted by all of us, and we're right. Somebody want to take a shot at describing what William Lane Craig did to the objection that things have to be proven by science in order to be rational? He just gave instances, and we're Okay, all right. He gave instances, right? And that's something that we're, that, that we're told all the time. In order for something to be rational, in order for us to be truly reasonable people, 
we have to believe in only that which is scientifically verifiable. Uh, Remember the first one he brought up? Logical and mathematical truths. How do you you prove scientifically mathematical truths such as 2 plus 2 equals 4? Well, you don't, right? Because it falls outside of the scientific method. Uh, There was another one. Remember the second class of of beliefs? Things like the external world is real. How many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? All right, all that, he's going back and trying to dodge the bullets and so forth. The premise of, of the matrix was, is there an external world or are we all simply brains in a vat and some supercomputer is trying to input data in which we think that we're having real experiences. You think that you're sitting on a chair, but in reality, you're just a brain in a vat getting that stimuli from the supercomputer. Now, here's the thing. Is it reasonable, is it rational for us to believe that we're actually here sitting in a chair? Yes. And sometimes professors mess up students, especially freshmen, and they say, well, what if, what if there is no reality at all? What if reality is simply an illusion? A good, quick response, and if you've got... um, something to write on our outline, a great response is, if that's true, without having to get into solipsism, and Lindsay can explain all of the details of solipsism to you. If you don't know what that is, and if you don't know what it is and you don't care, that's fine too, all right? You just say, well, if this is an illusion, then your question doesn't exist, right? So you can use, you can turn it back on its own head. I think the third one was um, ethical truths, Right? How do you, and y'all talk to me on this one, how do you make a distinction scientifically between what Joseph Mengele did in the Nazi camps and what Dr. Bumgardner does here in town, helping people go from being ill to being well? Somebody tell me how you assess scientifically the difference between those two polar opposites. You, You don't. Why? Well, it's, it's not, it's, it's out, falls outside of the scientific method, right? The scientific method is a test for some truth, but not all truth. And then he goes on about the, the, the theory of special relativity, about how that's, that's an assumption that based upon all the data that we have right now, we're, it's reasonable to accept that, right? But you can't prove that in a repeatable fashion like you can with, you know, E. coli samples in a lab somewhere. So those are just a few things, and you can find this if you want to do a Google search on it um, or look it up on YouTube. It's Dr. William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins. William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins, and it's just that clip right there. I think just one of the versions has about a quarter of a million views. It's absolutely one of the greatest uh, smackdowns of that argument ever. So I just wanted to show that to everybody as we start off just to give you a few keys, and here's the difference. When people say you ha- it has to be scientifically proven, we know that there are lots of things that we can't prove by science, but the question, not can you prove it, but is it reasonable to believe it? You see? There's a lot of things we can never prove, 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 but it's absolutely reasonable to believe in.
So that may help um, when you come into contact with someone who wants to give an argument for scientism. Any points there? Questions? All right. And we'll get to the text here in just a few moments. If you want to hold your place in Galatians chapter uh, 1 there, we're going to come to that in just a few moments when we address worldview. But here's a few definitions of what a worldview is. James Sire says a worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions which we hold consciously or subconsciously about the basic makeup of our world. Okay, And we'll talk about some more uh, of what a worldview would be. Gary Phillips and William Brown categorize it this way. A worldview is, first of all, an explanation and interpretation of the world, and second, an application of this view of life in simpler terms. Our worldview is a view of the world and a view for the world. And a lot of times in church, we haven't talked about worldview, but we're going to do that, we're going to do that more and more. Here's just... Um, a list of four universal needs of a worldview. In order for someone to believe anything at all, these things have to be there. Number one, you have to have knowledge. Okay. In other words, you're going to offer someone wisdom and ethics. This would be, every worldview must answer those questions that nag every person, such as, how do I live with my neighbor, and where do I come from? Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? A lot of times we're so busy in life that people actually sit down and ask the question, how should I live? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, I think it was back in the 70s, but it was the book on how then shall we live? Like, how, how do we actually live? Now think about it. How do you work? What is the manner in which you view people? How do we interact with people? All of that comes from a worldview. Secondly, is community, belonging, and fellowship. Every worldview must offer a banner under which each person can live and a group with which he is identified. In the U.S., we're big on individualism. I think there's some great things to be said about individualism and individual rights. But at the end of the day, every person wants to belong to something, right? And if you've ever watched uh, the show Gangland, and watch that... Okay, it's, it's about the gangs and, and what goes into gang recruitment. And even if you've talked to people who are in gangs uh, or have come out of gangs, most all of them say what appealed most to them about the gang was the concept of family. Very, very interesting. Number three, forgiveness, which is freedom from guilt. Every worldview must deal with evil in a comprehensive way, including personal sin, regardless of how they define it. Think, for example, uh, about a Buddhist. You want to? Mm-hmm. All right, Virginia's got a great story. Go for it. Uh, well, yesterday I was meeting with a professor at dinner, and we're working on a project um, here in the community. And um, I guess toward the end of our conversation, he had this quote, and he it was from a Gregorian monk, like 14th century. I don't know if he was looking to start the conversation or what, but it just kind of, we started talking and then we started um, just talking about some of our worldviews and our beliefs and, and uh, I asked him, what what do you consider yourself? And then he said, well, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. And I said, what do you mean? And so we just started talking and talking and um, he, he has some beliefs about Jesus and there's some things he absolutely believes to be true. 
then there's lots and lots of things that he's questioning. <coughs> and he's actually starting to experiment with the Buddhist faith and um, with Buddhism, and uh, there's a lot of things about that that he believes. And so we talked for about an hour, and the only reason that we stopped is because he had to pick up his daughter. But it was really good. Um, some of the things, just engaging in the conversation, and I think thanks to what I've learned in Ben's classes and Jonathan's classes and, you know, on the Sunday morning, I knew enough that I could at least engage in discussion. Um, I don't know that I had all the answers, but I challenged him enough that he didn't have all the answers either. So, um, and we agree, yeah. So we agree, we continue the conversation again, and I wrote down some of his questions that I remembered I didn't really have an answer for, but I knew I wanted to approach him again about it. But it was really good. It made me really excited about what we're Awesome. Awesome. And we will get to Buddhism. So good job, Regina. Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, a lot of times, I think, in, in the South, there's always going to be that stuff on a college faculty, right? Always. You're going to have more people who would be inclined, I think, unless it's a very solid Christian school, inclined away from the gospel. But here's what I have found out in my very short life so far. That a lot of people who are raised in the South, in the context of an evangelical, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, they have questions. When Fred leaves the room, everybody wonders what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) They do the same with the eaters. Just just silence. Yes. Oh, wait. But... um. I forgot where it was. <laughs> but here, here's, here's the thing, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there has been a cultural shift. Cultural scholars will tell you 1968, the Tet Offensive, <coughs> Vietnam, the things that were happening here. That is when the United States culture turned. It turned from modernism which is science can cure everything, where everything's progressing, everything's going forward, to what we have now, and it's called postmodernism, which means if that's true for you, that's fine. Um, I'm, I've got my truth over here. And, and the, the interesting thing about all of that is people born since that time are confronted with questions that previous generations did not have. If you went to school long before that, you remember that you had Bible reading in school, prayer in school. Fred was telling me today that sometimes they would have a hymn, even sung, at school. And not only that, you went. a lot of people went to church, and churches still had Sunday night. They had training union on Sunday afternoon. They had Sunday school in the morning. They had youth stuff on Wednesday night. So you had much more of, of, of a, I guess you could say, a Christian-esque culture, and now that's not the case, right? Now, for people my age and even younger, the the influence of the gospel is growing less and less. So what happens is those questions and the relevance of this comes up more and more all the time. Um, And I can't wait till we get to Buddhism, because I think the connection of Jesus, not that Jesus was a Buddhist in any way, but boy, the inroads that you can make through the life of Jesus to connect with a Buddhist are absolutely phenomenal. I think it's great. Um, so I can't wait. So good job once again, Regina. So um, legacy, number four. So we've got knowledge, community, forgiveness, and legacy, which is eternal or everlasting significance. 
Even worldviews that do not offer an eternal destination, which would be humanism, which means it's just nothing more than this life, must offer the individual to participate in something bigger than themselves that will last beyond their life. Even the Soviets, right? They said there is no God. I asked um, one person who was in the Soviet Union when I was there in Kazakhstan a few years ago, I said... It seems like the Soviets always did fairly well in battle. What was what was the driving motif if they knew that once they died, that was it? They said they fought so that they could provide a better life for their children, to provide a utopia that they didn't experience, but that their family could. So worldview has to provide all of that. And here's what we're going to look at from Galatians chapter three, or excuse me, chapter one and verses three through five. The Bible says Galatians one verse three, grace. To you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our what? For our sins to, to what? Deliver us or rescue or save us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, the knowledge here is grace and peace. Would you say we need a little bit more grace and peace in personal interactions today? All right. And this will come out in the messages that follow on Sunday. But one reason why I think reality TV has gotten so big is because we can look at reality TV, not good stuff like Duck Dynasty. All right. And that's, that's, that's just that's just good stuff. All right. Sigh. You know. Hey, Jack, happy, 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 all that good stuff. All right. But but like the, the reality shows that really exploit people, okay? Because here's what we can do. We can watch a reality show, and we can come away, watch after that show, and be like, I knew I've got problems, but at least I'm not like those freaks, right? Compared to Jersey Shore, I'm a saint. And it's very easy to look at that and to say, look, I'm not them, so I feel better about myself. So not only grace and peace and then community, it says to the churches of Galatia, to the church, it means the gathering, it means the assembly of those who are like-minded, belonging and fellowship. But forgiveness is the freedom from guilt, Jesus who gave himself for our sins. The legacy has to do with um, what Christ has done. He's delivered us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. You see, the cool thing about the gospel is it really answers all the great questions of existence. It answers the question, where did I come from? It says that you have been created by Almighty God with a purpose to glorify and love Him forever. Atheism says you are the product of random chance. The question like, how do I live? The Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Atheism says whatever makes you happy. We know a lot of times the things that would make us happy at the moment are the things that later cause us yeah, misery, great regret. We think about where am I going when I die? Atheism says you go back, once you die, you rot. The Bible says you go to one of two places, heaven or hell. Such a stark contrast. And we'll break that down here. This is a little bit of review, uh, starting from last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but just to kind of uh, fuel the fire. Seven major objections to Christianity, the talk show question. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Anybody have something in their pocket? Any, anything quick? Quick draw response to this? Here comes a Scud missile. It's heading right towards you. What's the defense? What if you 
sincerely believe that murder is okay. Okay. It doesn't matter. I mean, how can you say that? All right, good. Good. What else? Well, if it doesn't matter, why are we even talking about it? Good. Take him out at the knees. All right, headshot, take him out the knees. All right, good. So that's all the violent metaphors here. You want to throw anarchy, you didn't have, you know, just do whatever you're probably doing. Okay. Okay. Um, we're getting, and if you guys, another great book, it's, the guy's name is Greg Kukul, K-O-U-K-L, and it's a small book, cheap book, not in value, but it's called Tactics. And once we go through some of this for probably about this month, we're going to start looking at tactics, ways that you, when people make statements, like you're saying, Regina, the professor said I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. What do you mean by that? You know, and let them flesh it out. So, uh, number two, all religions are basically the same. Okay. They've been told this, they lodge it at you. Here comes a fastball straight down the plate. Any response that we could give? <laughs> In love. I love you, Jesus. Right, okay. They can have truths about religions, but some things are very similar. And they think that if you use that, they actually use that to be evil. They will have truths here. Okay. Like the Quran, the Bible, 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 the 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 and, uh, Christianity, you know, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, good. So we could, we could take both of those approaches. One, say, well, in one sense, all religions do have a central core to say that there's a higher reality out there, that here's how you should walk. But within Christianity, Jesus says things that really contradict, like you said, Islam. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Quran says that Jesus didn't die on the cross because God would never allow one of his prophets to die. But they also, in Islam, hold that basically all of the Old Testament prophets are the prophets of God. But yet, if we take that to be the case, we've got lots of accounts in the Bible of prophets being killed or talking about their prophet friends being killed. But one thing that's interesting right here, and a lot of times this is kind of undercutting, like what, what Ronnie said, if it doesn't matter, then why do, why do we even need to talk about it? You can put a rock in their shoe and just say, well, you know what? You're probably right about that. But something that's different about Christianity, y'all know where this is going, right? Is it's not actually a religion per se, because Christianity has no ladder that we're trying to climb to get to God. In fact, Christianity is God coming down off the mountain in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. You can go at it from different ways, but the biggest thing is to ask to be led by the, the Lord. Uh, number three, the argument from evil. If God is all good, all powerful, why do these bad things happen? We're going to hit that for six weeks, beginning in April on Sunday mornings. Number four, what about those who have never heard of Jesus? Uh, last week we, we knocked that one down. And number five, doesn't the Bible have contradictions. Okay, This is a very popular one. Um, something that's I have 
tried to use here these past couple of years is something that's called the minimal facts argument. And it comes from actually Gary Habermas, who teaches at Liberty. He's taught at Oxford, Cambridge, all these places around the world. And here's what happens when people come and they attack the source of our faith, the the Word of God. Do you have to believe that the Bible is the Word of God to believe that Jesus was a historical figure? No. We've got lots of accounts from pagans, from Romans, from Josephus that talk about this guy, Jesus, and they give details about his life. Do you have to believe that the Bible is inspired and inerrant to believe that Jesus was put on the cross by the Jews and the Romans? No. Do you have to believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant and fallible word of God to believe that there was the empty tomb after Jesus was buried. No. There are other accounts of that. So here's what Habermas has done, and it's so brilliant. He calls it the minimal facts argument. He says, not only do you have to not believe that the Bible is without error, you can even go back to say, well, you don't even have to believe that the Bible is an authority. Then you go back and you say, I don't even believe that the Bible is true at all. But what you get from all of the secular historians around that time is that you establish that Jesus was crucified by the Jews and the Romans for claims that he was the son of God. He was buried and then there was an empty tomb. All scholars today, except for, you know, maybe a fringe group, they hold to those historical realities. So based upon that data alone, this is so brilliant, you can establish credibility for the resurrection without even having to go to the Bible. Now, are we saying that God's word is not true? No, it's absolutely true. But we're saying that if someone brings up this objection, you don't always have to fight fire with fire. You can simply bypass it and hit them from a different direction. In the word of William Wallace, flank them. All right. Uh, number six, isn't religion just a crutch? Anybody remember the, the verse that we used, the concept? It's not a crutch, it's a parachute. Ray Comfort came up with this. That when you're in a plane and the plane is going down, you need a parachute. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 14 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a a common way that you can get around the crutch element to say that it's just for weak-minded people. Number seven, isn't it arrogant to say Christianity is the only way? What do you think? This is a pretty popular one. Anything that comes to mind, how we could respond to this? Jesus said it, we're not saying God. Boom. The authority, that's a great point, Lindsay. Where does the authority rest? It's with God. But here's, here's the temptation for us to get our pride involved and to say, well, Christianity is right. Jesus is the one way. But it's not, it's not us. It's him. So say, look, I'm not the one who said that. Jesus said that. And so you can, you can go at it um, at different uh, angles. So here's three choices in apologetics. Number one is to never say anything because it ends up in a fight. That's a common objection. This is probably number one. Well, I just don't want to offend anybody. All right, that's called cowardice. And the reason why is when things come up, you ask yourself the question, why did God put me here if he didn't want me to speak truth? 
Okay? It's not always saying we have to dump the whole load of truth on them, you know, or hold them down and turn on the fire hydrant, but it doesn't mean that we have license just to run. Number two is the response would be to always argue or the kick the door down method. And there's a difference between being bold and brash, being bold in the truth versus attacking the person. We are to be bold in the truth, but the manner in which we do that should be in love. And number three, let the Holy Spirit guide you out of all of this. And this is the second week here, still kind of introduction. This is the most important aspect, I believe. Let the Holy Spirit guide you right time, the right way to do it, and the right reason. Here's a a great statement from Irish evangelist Gypsy Smith. He said, there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And some people will never read the first four. Obviously, he's not saying that we are equal to Scripture or that our experiences are. But all of the answers that we have, if that is not preceded by concern for the person, okay, and if, if you're hardcore here tonight, if you're a talker, if you're driven, you've got to be very careful when you learn these, these, these tools because if not, we will blow the person away because we don't want to win the argument and lose the person. Amen? There's a friend of mine, great guy, he's done missions in Muslim countries for years, and he says, Jeff, I've changed my approach. He says, I have won many arguments, but I've lost many people. It can be possible to be right, but all the person comes away with is that person thinks that they're smarter than I am. And that's the last thing that we ever want to do. Pastor, keep that in mind. At what point? Stop. Do you stop? Trying to talk and convince I would say, yeah, I would say that we'd be talking more about the manner in which we do it in that sense to be led by the spirit, but letting the Holy Spirit guide you. Some people say that that sounds like a cop out, but every single time I pull up to somebody's house to visit every single time I know that I'm going to be with unbelievers. It's a kind of a simple prayer. Every time we go to the jail. We just stop there in the car and say something like, Lord, please lead us, please get, please guide us. And I would say to your question, when, when should we stop? I always want to err on the side of making sure that they get the truth as opposed to not offending them. Because the thing is, is all personality and all methods aside, the fact that you are not good enough to get to heaven and that Jesus came to die for you and if you don't repent, you're going to hell forever. That's straight up offensive. I don't care who you are. So I would say that in our culture, the best thing, and this is, this is just Jeff, that we should err strongly on the side of making sure they get the information of the gospel and to communicate that here's something I want for you, if that makes sense. But I think the manner in which we do that often opens the door to how much they allow us to share. So, but that's a, that's a great question. <clears throat> so here's the worldview. Uh, it comes from the German word uh, Weltanschauung, which is the world look, the way that you view the world. Um, if you're a conspiracy theorist, doesn't matter what happens, it's always a conspiracy, right? It's a worldview. Um, if making money is your worldview, everything is seen through the lenses of dollar signs, gaining popularity. Um, if that's the worldview, then um, that may be the case. And the point here is that notoriety 
Um, they know you, but they're making fun of you. American Idol, the worst of American Idol. Some people want to be famous, and they think that people knowing about them is means they're famous. It's no, people just know about you, and they're making fun of you. So those are just some examples of that. But here's a question that I, I want us to discuss. How does being a Christ follower, a Christian, affect your worldview? It seems to be one of those basic questions that the only answer is, duh, let's move on. But... But what are some things that come to mind? How does being a follower of Christ affect the view that we have on the world? Well, like, your worldview is basically like a framework of what you believe about origins, meaning, destiny. So if you believe that God created the world, and your destiny is to serve Him, mm-hmm. and um, or your destiny is to, you know, if you believe in Him, to go to heaven and be with Him, Right. and your meaning is to serve his purpose and to glorify him, then it's going to affect the way that I treat people, and it's going to affect the way that I live every day. Okay. And, you know, being a Christ follower and saying that I'm a Christian and being genuine in that statement means that I'm going to believe that God created the world and that my meaning is to serve him. Okay. Good. I think the bigger way to frame that might be that if you're a Christian, does your worldview affect the way you act? Because a lot of people don't know that people are Christians because their worldview doesn't influence their behavior. Okay. So if you say that you're a Christian and you go out and you're boozing it up, what's your worldview? Mm. Uh, I don't think that you're a Christian. Mm. Or if you're someone who's found out. Right. Are you a Christian? I don't see your worldview showing through in the things that you do. So there may be a case in which people say, I believe this, but somewhere from that to the worldview lived out, there's a disconnect. What do you think that that says to people if we learn all this stuff and we memorize Grutice's book? Oh, a pathful to enlightenment. I'm about to show you some Jesus enlightenment, you know, and then you just go for it, you know, all that stuff. And it's one of these one of these questions that did, we were asked at youth camp right back in the day. Like, does does our does our does our walk match our talk? And that's yes. Well, no, that's one of the arguments that came up was mm-hmm. you know hypocrisy. There's yes, the, and I know we're going to be talking about that, but that was one of those, and I feel like that's one that comes up a lot. So it didn't really have to do with the dudes I was talking to, but yeah. um, it, I mean, it came up last night, but it comes up a lot. Absolutely. Um, one we're, all, thing. we're all sinners, and uh, I, everybody says that about hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I am, I am a sinner. I do make mistakes. I do sometimes have a foul mouth, you know, mm-hmm. and I do things wrong. Mm-hmm. But I try, I'm trying, and I, and I do ask for forgiveness, and I really do want to sometimes change, you know. Right. But I'm not... I'm, I'm, I get that a lot with the hypocrites, but I'm not, we're not, not, not hypocrites because that's what I'm going to I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk with Christ. You know, I'm not going to be perfect, you know, so I'm just a human being. Good, good, yeah. Um, a lot of times when people use the hypocrites in the church approach, I usually say, you know what? Jesus said the same thing. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right that there are hypocrites in the church. And Jesus said there were going to be. And then go to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says you shall know them by their fruits. But then, because a lot of times this is one of these irrational things that people bring up to you when you try to do something like invite them to church. 
Just that. You're not, you're not even asking them if they want to get saved. And they say, oh, a church is full of hypocrites. Once you acknowledge that that is valid in some cases, and once you acknowledge that they agree with Jesus, which sometimes, depending on their receptivity, that may offend them or not, but that's a point they would need to be offended because it's very true. Um, you you kind of take it a step further and say, okay, but what does that have to do with the resurrection of Jesus? Kind of an awkward question, but not really. You see, the fact that there are fakes out there, honestly, it doesn't have any bearing with Jesus, whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. If the evidence is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, then Christianity is true, whether the church has 90% hypocrisy. You see? And a lot of times when people bring that issue up, they're not trying to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the Bible is full of lies. They're trying to give a smokescreen or a red herring fallacy to try to get us off the track. But then we can simply ask them this question. Say, if, if that's true, why, why would you let someone else's sin, someone else's hypocrisy, why let that spoil your relationship with God? Right? Because what they're saying is, well, that person, because they're not walking with God, therefore I shouldn't be able to have a relationship with God. Because that person's a fake I don't want to become real. Well, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's an irrational belief. So just just point that out. Say, why should someone else's fakeness disbar you from being able to experience Christ and experience service in the church and experience the love of the Lord? But often, and we'll get to this more and more, often it's not intellectual, it's emotional. So, um, biblical worldview, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 Beginning in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Stop right there. What do you think that the that Moses is trying to communicate, or the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate via Moses? Homeschool? Alright. Okay. I mean, look, look. I mean, I hate to admit that, but that's, that's probably the most quoted verse for homeschoolers is, why do you do it? Because it's, it's a whole lot of work. I mean, it's, it's very expensive. Someone has to basically sacrifice having a job, et cetera, et cetera. But right. When you get right. right down to it as a parent, what are you commanded to do? Well, really, that's the one thing that you are commanded to do is what's said in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. You're mm-hmm. supposed to teach your children, and not just occasionally, you're supposed to teach them every day through the day. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a suggestion, it's a command. Right, it says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So it's not obviously commanding homeschooling per se, that would be eisegesis for the people who would. And I know a lot in the homeschooling community, I was homeschooled, will say that you have to in order to serve God. I don't believe that's the case. Some people, that's good. Um, but e- either way, or like a, like a single parent home, you can still 
you can still influence your children for the Lord. Uh, verse 8, you should, this gets even more interesting. Jewish culture, you guys are going through this on Sunday morning um, in your Sunday school class. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They would carry around scripture in little boxes, little uh, phylacteries, that they would walk around having Bible verses in boxes around their head. That's... And, and today we're like, dude, it's a big Bible you bring on Sunday morning. But back then they were they were serious about it. So uh, what apologetic methodology is used in Scripture? Here's what we have left. We're not going to be able to get to tonight. Those six um, major worldviews. Actually, it's seven with theism. We will get to those next week. All right. It will be a survey on how to talk to everyone from atheist agnostics. But before we go, there's just three. Apologetic methodologies using scripture. One would be straight out Christ promotion. John 14.6. Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You say, Jeff, how do we know when to use this as opposed to others? Leading of the Holy Spirit. That's my answer. Uh, Contra Pharisees or contra false religions. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus goes on a verbal minus the sin tirade against the Pharisees and how Phariseeism doesn't act up. So there is a time and place, and especially in the Old Testament. I remember Elijah on Mount Carmel when they had the prophets of Baal. He was not very politically correct. They're there, they're dancing, they're cutting themselves, they're praying that Baal would send down the fire to eat up the sacrifices in the water. And what was one of the things that he said? Or that he alleged against the false god of Baal. Okay. Alright. God may be... Your god, Baal, may be going to the restroom. Okay. Also, your god may be taking a nap. And he was there, and he's 400 against 1. So, that's probably not, probably not the best thing we should do. Like Regina, round 2, with the prof. Walk in and be like, so... I know, I know, I know what Buddha's doing. He's asleep, right? And it's not, not exactly, but, but we're just saying there's biblical precedent for taking down false ideas. And then the contra paganism, Acts chapter 17 and verses 16 through 34, Paul all by himself, he's there in Athens, the intellectual capital of the world at the time. He's a Jewish tent maker. And he stands up in front of these brilliant intellects, these philosophers. And if you've ever read any Greek philosophy, the Romans, this is amazing. The Romans were the military, the might of the ancient world. They were the ones who beat the Greeks. They were the ones who figured out how to break the phalanx, shield over shield, spear over spear, kind of like a moving scissor pattern. The Romans figured out how to beat that. Brilliant tacticians, but the Romans said, the Greeks... You guys are way too smart for us. So they would hire conquered Greeks to tutor their own children. Here's Paul standing up in front of all the philosophers and he preaches about Jesus Christ who came to die for the sins of the world and the resurrection of the dead. And they, most of them, scoffed at him, but God laid it upon a few people's hearts to come forward and respond to the gospel. So every situation that we come into with people, often it's easy to try to go information first, information, 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 <coughs> pray, ask for the leading power of the Holy Spirit, 
to give you the right information and give you the word. So next week, we're going to break down these six worldviews and go through them. Um, y'all have any questions? Any one-liners? Jesse, did you have, was it McDonald's? Uh, Wendy's. Wendy's, okay. Is it good? Okay, all right, good deal. Okay. Yes, yes, that's that's case in point. Case in point. Case in point. Good deal. All right. Um, the last Wednesday of this month, we're going to go out and visit. So we've got two more before this. It's going to be awesome. Hope to see you guys on Sunday morning. We're going to start off our series on reach out. Um, reaching out to our community. I'm really excited about it. We're going to have some props. We're going to have a good time. So bring somebody with you.